Tour de France beginning in Denmark and docking on the French mainland in Dunkirk would appear more likely to confound wine lovers than delight them. Cycling Podcast is now in its third year of teaming up with Divine Sellers of London to offer cases celebrating the Grand Tours. And this year's Corn Boucle certainly presented a challenge, at least until the route reaches the Vosges Mountains and Alsace. With just six days to go until the start in Copenhagen, I met up with Greg Andrews at Divine Cellars HQ in South London to discuss exactly how he solved the puzzle and the wines that made it into our mouth-watering final half dozen. You can find details of how to order the Cru des Flaneurs at thecyclingpodcast.com or head directly to divinecellars.com. That's D-V-I-N-E-C-E-L-L-A-R-S.com and look for the cycling podcast selections on Divine's online shop. Detailed information about the wines themselves is also included in the show notes for this episode. First though, here I am with Greg to take you on a guided tour. That is, the cycling podcast Viticultural Tour de France, the 2022 edition. Well, hello or bonjour. We're talking about the Tour de France and I'm here with our great friend and cycling podcast wine expert maestro, Greg Andrews of Divine Sellers. Greg, this is the first one of these. We've done a few now. This is the first one we've done in person. What a privilege. Finally, finally we get to catch up in person and sort of, hopefully later on maybe have a glass of wine. I was about to say, Greg, <laughs> exactly. the, the, the wine is conspicuous through its absence. It's a little early in the morning. It's a yeah. Sunday morning. The Tour de France, the start of the Tour de France is um, less than a week away. But yeah, I'm, um, well, I'm encouraged by that anyway, the promise that there might be some tasting later on. But Greg, we're going back to France. Um, I think this is the third year we've done a case linked to, inspired by, sort of mimicking the Tour de France route. Um, it was a challenge, a challenge you've risen to yet again. And um, it's a challenge that you enjoy every year because I think I'm right in saying that France, as it is for most people, was your first love, really, in the world of wine. Well, my, my first exposure to sort of um, French winemaking was my first trip to mainland Europe where back in 1998 I was lucky enough to win a competition and uh, a, sh- a champagne house sort of took took me over to um, to Champagne. What Ever. kind of competition? Uh, basically it was sort of we, myself and some colleagues uh, were selling the most of a, a, I think it was a 1992 vintage of a particular champagne. Uh, we were able to I think over the course of a month, whoever sold the most was a lucky winner and got the trip to Champagne. Uh, so fortunately, uh, got to you know got to drink some Dom Perignon and Epinay, uh, which was a nice, a very nice prize to enjoy. But uh, also started to open up my eyes in terms of the enormity of the French wine industry. Uh, so previously only seen in the new you know because I hadn't been to Europe, I'd, I'd seen wine making of massive scales in the US and Australia but even then those were dwarfed by the absolute beast that is the French wine industry and obviously the the level of diversity you get across the the country is amazing and the great thing about the Tour de France is with the route changing every year you get to go to different places you get to unearth different grapes unique grapes and also in some respects places that I may have tasted, you know, you get to revise things that you haven't had recently. And very much this tour has done all of that and more in terms of taking into new ground with 
um, with well with some new territory in Switzerland, for example. So. Well, the route, I said it's, it was a challenge this year. I think this year was a particular challenge with the route because it was very southern-based and very sort of southeast-based or east-based yeah. um, in some respects. We'll get onto that in a minute, Greg. We should, it would be remiss of us not to just recap quickly on the Giro, the Selezione Simpatica, our viticultural tribute to our, our late friend Richard Moore. Um, it was very well received, the case, wasn't it? And um, I know that you took great enjoyment out of planning that selection and um, I think the, our listeners had took a great amount of enjoyment out of tasting some of the wines. Well we've had some amazing feedback from uh, from the customers who bought cases this year. Um, I think the Montepulciano was the, the favourite if, if nothing else it's the wine that people seem to have reordered most although although we have had some some pretty good feedback about the uh, the Etna Rosso, you know, a lot of people enjoyed that. Uh, the Lambrusco definitely, definitely polarised some views, but people definitely loved it. That is for sure. Um, but no, it was a really, really successful uh, case. I mean, we've also sort of a few people have followed up and enjoyed some of the ferment from Hungary. So uh, a really good case again. And for me, sort of the, the Giro was a massive success with an Australian winner, of course. <laughs> so I'm glad you had to get that one in. I'm but, glad you were paying attention. Yeah. Greg, French wine, and we talked about polarising people. French wine sometimes polarises people. Um, but one thing that would consistently be said about French wine, particularly nowadays, particularly in 2022, is that it's expensive. And with costs of living rising everywhere, people might doubt that they can find any value in French wine. And you obviously are working to a budget on the cycling podcast and selections and the cases, but this idea, this preconception that French wine is expensive and it's a challenge economically, how true is that at the moment in particular for well, British consumers? Definitely on the sur surface of it, people, uh, people do generalise and automatically think French wines are expensive. And if you look at Burgundy, you look at Bordeaux, you look at Champagne, it is horrendously expensive. There's no question in terms of the the demand for wines out of Burgundy, Bordeaux, you know, make them some of the most expensive wines in the world. There's no question, you know. But on a broader scale, there have been some immense challenges with what's come out of France in terms of obviously Brexit, the the gift that keeps on giving. Um, you know, in terms of we've seen some prices in transport raised by forty percent. We've seen seen shipping times double in some cases where you, you would be able to order, order a consignment of wines and have that delivered a week to 10 days. Now we're talking 20 to 30 days. You know, those delays all have an impact. They all have a financial impact that makes things more difficult again. And I think, you know, when you look at, coupled with the inflation that everyone's experiencing right now, it is a more challenging exercise to find value in France. There's no question about that. And for us, it's it's a challenge that we like to look further and beyond those traditional areas of Bordeaux and Burgundy. Now, sure, we, we do have those on the shelf, but being able to look at something different, you know, look at the growers, in, especially in the southwest, where this particular tour we're seeing a lot of those, you know, the route takes us down to sort of down to Cahors, down down to the Pyrenees, and there's some great wines we'll talk about later on, but equally some, uh, you know, a blend a couple of blends we have sort of particularly the the Alsace and it would be rude you know that the value the real value proposition that Daniel and I were talking about earlier is the Cote de Rhone 
you know it's it's the staple where because of it's such good value and over delivers more often than not is a really good banker for lack of a better word it's reliable and it really does deliver consistent enjoyment vintage on vintage and you know i think a lot of people find it really quite versatile so it's a really terrific wine but on the question of value it's not getting easier you're right but equally that's our job to try and find some value and some something that people can enjoy and certainly with this tour i think i think there's definitely a lot of interesting value here there really is and we talked, Greg, back in 2020 when people were obviously shut, um, shut in at home about their willingness to spend a little bit more on wine. Well, we'll talk about Switzerland later, but I was with my friend, the winemaker in Switzerland, a couple of weeks ago, and I was asking him whether that's a trend that's continued where people's sort of threshold for how much they're willing to spend on wine that they drink at home has risen slightly. And he said that hasn't necessarily been the case that um you know if during those six months or eight months when people were at home they were willing to spend sort of 25 30 euros or swiss francs in in his case on a bottle that that they have made that adjustment and they've gone back to sort of previous levels have you seen any trends in in that regard i think i think a lot of people uh sort of i suppose post-covid shall we say um have reverted back to the old trend of you know um, people sort of going out a lot more so invariably because of the price of wine in restaurants being a I suppose they're not drinking the same level of quality uh, some of our customers have kind of realized that and it's reminded them that there is more quality to come in store you're getting far more wine for your money especially if you're cooking at home yeah so often people come in and say look i'm sort of cooking a, a river beef this weekend what am i going to drink with it and more often than not saying i don't want to drink bordeaux i don't want to i want to drink something different something more exciting and i think that's where I, a lot of we're seeing more consumers do that and take a bigger interest in what they're drinking which is as you because when people couldn't go out they had to adventure themselves they had to go and find something a bit different and i think in this case you know we're seeing not everyone has sort of some people have gone back to their old ways for sure but a lot of people have stuck to that new mantra about let's find something different let's educate ourselves a bit more and we're definitely sort of seeing that so the cycling podcast powered by super sapiens energy management for committed athletes and coaches Speaking of educating ourselves a bit more, well, we, we haven't been enlightened to the extent where we've found any winemakers in Denmark. I'm sure they exist. Of course, the Tour de France does start in Denmark this year. I'm sure there are some madcap mavericks in the, the there north. Are, there are, but sadly, the, sort of the, uh, the, the amount of wine that's sort of produced in, in, in Denmark or Scandinavia or even, uh, even, even Belgium uh, is quite is quite prohibitively, prohibitively expensive because of the low yields that they deal with. And the quality, I think it's fair to say, is, isn't always the most consistent, uh, especially with frosts in northern France, you know, or France last year. It's definitely created issues um, with regard to consistency of yields and crop. And I think you're better off grabbing a beer or drinking a gin you know, sort of while we're going through sort of Denmark. Um, and even sort of when it, when the tour finally does get to France, so it's in uh, Dunkirk, I believe. Um, and it's, again, you know, you're, you're deep inside a country there. So 
and whilst we do have a couple of French siders, I didn't really want to occupy occupy slot in the box for that. I think it was we, there's a lot more value later in the tour in the southwest, really. Yeah, maybe just have a, a very healthy, dry first week and then wait until well, stage seven, isn't it, Greg, before we get close to well, we get to Alsace or the Vosges Mountains. And it is indeed Alsace that provides our first wine of this year's Tour de France selection. If you'd like to introduce it, Greg. So the uh, Cuvée Gentil uh, from uh, Domain Weinbeck in the Alsace. Uh, these guys are a biodynamic producer and from previous uh previous podcasts biodynamic is very much a, a focus on the on traditional agricultural methods harvesting and planting on the lunar cycle using a number of natural preparations to enhance the life in the soil and the health of the soil on the premise that you, the vines will be far healthier producing far far better quality fruit being more resilient and for us as a as a wine shop we see value in you know ultimately you can't make good wine with bad fruit and if you've got those building blocks in place at the beginning you're then giving yourself a reasonable chance of ma making great wine which the cuvée gentil is it's a um, for us you know we've uh, we came across this wine it's it's generally only sold in restaurants uh the producer didn't necessarily want to put this into the mass market because for a number of reasons but um you know, it, it is an absolutely fabulous wine where they, they vinify the Pinot Gris, Gewurz, Mus, Muscat and Riesling separately. And then they blend, blend that um, in order to actually create this, this fabulous wine that's sort of, it's beautifully spicy, it is fruit forward, it's got sort of some floral aromatics that make this absolutely perfect for oriental food. I mean, one of the things that sort of, uh, some of we were talking about is those soft Vietnamese spring rolls you get that are sort of um, you know are, are quite fragrant this is perfect for things like that you know it's really even sushi it's just a really good companion for sort of oriental food that has a little bit of spice to it and then because the the fruit that comes through in the wine will offset that and just make it make it a complete a complete partnership really Never mind making my mouth water, Greg. What made my eyes water when I first saw this wine and read a bit about it was the blend, the dizzying blend of grapes. You mentioned the Pinot Gris, the Gewürztraminer, Muscat, Auxerrois and Riesling that go into this wine. Now, Greg, is this a result of, we often hear and we know that the French um, and certainly particular regions in France have this almost... Um, religious devotion to what they call the terroir and the expression of the land rather than the emphasis in French winemaking has generally been on that rather than the grape variety and they would say that almost independently of, of the grape variety you will taste the earth you'll taste the expression of where it's produced so it shouldn't matter that these are um, five or six grapes that have quite different characteristics because what you'll be tasting is Alsace and you'll yeah. be tasting where this winery is. I think I think as well one of the when I visited Alsace producers particularly there's one in particular where he was talking through his rock wall where the different rocks were from and the because of the uh, I suppose because of the geological diversity of the Alsace there's so many different soil types whether it be sort of slate clay you know granitic soil even granitic soils in part it all sort of results in a different flavor profile for the grape that grows there as a result when blending through you can actually achieve something that's sort of uh, 
you know, has an incredible diversity, but equally balance that you may not necessarily get with a single varietal. And I think, I think a lot, yes, you do lack the, if I was going to be a geek, you know, you say, right, being able to taste the, t taste the specifics of something like an Oxawar is great. But I think when you're, when you certainly sat at the dinner table, having a wine that's a complete blend like this, I think give, certainly offers a lot more enjoyment and versatility actually. So, but you still get that, you should still get that tawar coming through. I think we do have a bottle upstairs we can have a look at later on. Excellent, excellent. Now, Greg, that is stage seven. Now, for stages eight and nine, take your pick, because we're spending more than a day in Switzerland. We are going to, well, a wine-producing region I actually know pretty well, because I, I worked there way back in um, 1999. And this, the northern shores of Lac Limon, or Lake Geneva, as people often call it in English. And, well, this is an unusual wine for its origin, and it's an unusual grape variety as well. I must confess, I didn't know the grape variety, but tell us a bit about it. So, the, um, the expression uh, from uh, Cab de la Côte, which is a cooperative in, in Switzerland, where these guys are working with a hybrid, which is where the the Chardonnay and Chasselas grapes were were effectively crossed and developed in a laboratory, and then they've gone out and then sort of planted uh, planted vineyards large scale for commercial production. And and yes, it's commercial commercial production, obviously, because it's a you know these guys. This is quite a large cooperative made up of 150 growers, uh, which so as a result, this particularly isn't this isn't organic or biodynamically certified because of the massive diversity of that cooperative they just can't work that way um, but what you do have is sort of a extremely accomplished winemaker um, who who is able to sort of take take the blend of Doral from several several wineries that they're working with and several vineyards that they're working with I should say and actually sort of make something that's you know yes it's quite fresh but it's also quite textural where you get sort of some lovely tropical fruits coming through you know a little bit of lemon citrus you know making this quite you know again quite good with sort of anything with a little bit of spice but equally a little bit more serious so things like pork anything grilled grilled pork or a Thai pork curry or even sort of some a Mexican food you know where you've got a little bit of spice playing with it because the weight and texture of the of the door out will certainly sort of uh, certainly benefit that I mean we were quite I was quite interested to find out that the winemaker is actually Chilean, uh, who's, who's now immigrated to Switzerland, but worked for quite a large producer in um, in Chile, and came over, wanted to work a couple of European vintages, and did that, and fell in love with Switzerland. And he's sort of been there. I think he's been at, been at the post now for sort of the last five years, really. So, and the quality of these wines has certainly evolved over recent years, and I think the the, the whites and the reds that they produce are all. I think you know quite serious, and I think that's great because it demonstrates for me that Switzerland isn't just a novelty of wine production. You know, even though they are extremely difficult to get hold of in the UK market, um, just simply there isn't the volume when you compare it with the wines coming out of France, Italy, Spain, etc. Um, but you do get, you know, there are some absolutely fabulous wines so that, that I'd only really previous had previously had when I'm going skiing in in Switzerland. 
So it's, you know, I'm really pleased to see that these wines are now becoming available in the market. And I think we'll start to see a little more Chasselas, a little more, certainly a few other varieties that you're not accustomed to seeing. It is a bit of a, a black box um, Swiss wine, not very well known at all in the rest of the world. In fact, when, when you tell people that Switzerland produces quite a lot of wine, they're usually surprised. Um, economic reasons, I think, are the, are the main reasons why they don't export more readily. But I'm just looking, Greg, and I was, I'm startled to find out that the biggest importer of Swiss wine in the world in 2020 was the United Kingdom. I can, for that reason, I mean, in terms of, you're right in what you say, but I think a large amount of the wines in, in Switzerland, they do get drunk domestically. You know, there's, a lot of, there's a lot of national pride. They do like their wines, and I think as well, because they are slightly different. But from an export market, I think the, the, United, the market in the UK is, is a lot more adventurous than you get with other countries. And that's a good thing. Uh, I think certainly within Europe, uh, you know, the, we, we know the French are nationalistic as are the Spanish and the, the Italians. So in terms of the other market, and certainly even the German, the German market is also quite nation, nationalistic as well. They do drink a lot of their own wine. It wines. makes sense also yeah, economically to, to drink your own. 100%. I mean, the, but I think the UK market, because of the... Traditionally, because of the lack of sort of wine grown here in the UK, the UK consumer isn't afraid to try something different. And I think, you know, there is a lot of it. The, the UK consumers we've had come into the shop who have asked for Swiss wines are quite passionate about it, you know, and, you know, they've really enjoyed it. So I, I said that's probably one of the bigger factors in your people have gone on holiday in Switzerland or they've uh, gone skiing or worked over there. They want to grab it when they come back into the UK. You know, and I think that's a good thing. Another thing, just before we started recording, Greg, that we talked, well, we talked about Swiss wine and what little kind of reputation it did have. It used to be sort of infamous as well in other parts of Europe for certain winemaking practices, particularly um, what's known in French anyway as chaptalisation, which means basically adding sugar, a lot of sugar in the case of Swiss winemakers historically. I mean, I talked about my experience working in the Swiss wine industry. And I was quite shocked um, when I visited a couple of wineries to see these enormous sacks of, sh- of sugar um, store, stored out the back. But th- I think that is something that's changed, and it's also changed as a result of, of climate change to a certain extent. 100%. 100%. I mean, sh- um, adding sugar is, is a, I suppose... Is, is a shortcut, a cheat, shall we say, of someone being a, it's a bit, I suppose, it's a bit like steroids in cycling. Uh, <laughs> to take, to take a, you know, where they're wanting to add bulk to a wine, um, when, when, and, and sugar will certainly enable the, the wines to have greater levels of alcohol and greater, greater sugar levels that wouldn't be possible uh, because of cooler climate. Now, obviously, with climate change, temperatures increasing, you're seeing producers being able to make a fuller style than what they they would have previously been able to do, and I think the UK is another. You know, certainly English wine is another example of that. We're starting to see more and more wines being produced in the UK because of global warming and the increase in average temperatures. And Switzerland would be no different to that. You know, and I think um, chapterisation is, you know, is, is outlawed in a lot of in most French appellations, even though. Even though we're, you know, certainly takes place in parts, as does the dilution, where people will add water to lower the alcohol of the wine as well. So, so you talked about doping in cycling or doping <laughs> in sport. 
Um, obviously, we discover that and we detect it by testing. How would you, how would you ever know if someone added sugar to a wine? I think, it, I think in terms of um, it's, it, it is a little more diff, you know, difficult depending on the sugars being used. But you will, you know, people will test the wine and look for ab- abnormal levels of sugar of a particular wine against maybe their neighbours or other people in the Appalachian. And they'll start to draw comparisons and enable further tests from there. But it's it it is. I mean, we ourselves do regard it as a as a cheat, for lack of a better word. Um, you know, just a shortcut because you you're not allowing the the region, you know, the producer, the region to reflect, you know, a sense of that vintage, a sense of a sense of the place where it's coming from. You know, you you're effectively then starting to make wine to a recipe, um, no different to which you make a cocktail. You know, you're adding and manipulating the end product. You know, for us, we want to see wine as a relatively natural product, you know, a product of agriculture, not manipulated or not made in a laboratory. So I think, you know, for us, you know, it's not something that we necessarily want to... It's not something we want to champion, uh, but equally there's no... Certainly, you can't ignore the fact that in Switzerland it certainly did take place. And there was quite a backlash that I think hurt the Swiss market internationally uh, for many years. And then Austria had a similar similar scandal, even sort of a little bit further back. And it's you know these guys were just trying to make wine, but equally they'd taken a shortcut to do it really. And I think Greg, I'm right in saying that styles and trends and tastes are moving away slightly from a sort of high alcohol, high fruit template that was definitely prevalent for for a couple of decades there definitely definitely i think the uh, the market trend for lighter and fresher then leans itself towards cooler climate wines or wines made without you know not needing excessive bulk or levels of alcohol and you know and that you know, is fueling some of the popularity of swiss wines as well which is a good thing really you know well i mean we of course have a white wine here but um but definitely on the reds they're usually you know Swiss wines are usually fresher, leaner, so, you know, very similar things like a Torel de Go or sort of some of the Austrian wines like a Zeigel or Blaufrankisch. They're always a little bit lighter and fresher. The Cycling Podcast is supported by Science in Sport. Science in Sport, fueled by science. Well, Greg, our last wine, I said it was from the northern shore of Lac Léman, the Rhone River passes through Lac Léman essentially and we're going to or down the Rhone Valley which I'm delighted about because this is one of my favorite wine producing regions we're, we're going to well the Côte du Rhone for our next wine and this is well stage 13 heads to Saint-Étienne it crosses the Rhone River and it crosses the northern part of the Rhone River and this is a Côte du Rhone from the northern part of the Rhone. Yes so Stéphane Auger uh a couple of years we've actually been trying to include these wines in the case uh, i think the first year we we wanted to uh, we wanted to put a viognier in the case and sadly there just wasn't sufficient volume enough to do that and really pleased to say that we've we've got sufficient we've got enough wine here to put in the case and this case is is his red which is uh, a blend of grenache mourvedre and uh, syrah uh, and whilst you know Cote de Rhone, you see a lot of Cote de Rhone in the market. It's also worthwhile emphasising that uh, you know, a Cote de Rhone made in the, the northern section of the Rhone should, should be a little more elegant, should be a little bit fresher 
the mines made in the south. So in the south, where you've got you've got sort of hotter temperatures, you're going to get something a little more chunky, a little bit more beefy. So Grenache uh, prevails. Grenache is dominant in the south of the Rhone, and um, Shiraz or Syrah is uh, the the grape that's accounts for for the like, is it sort of sixty seventy percent a typical Cote de Rhone from the will be 60-70% Shiraz from the or Syrah yeah. from the Northern Rhone? So, certainly in the Northern Rhone it sort of be, generally it will be more Syrah dominant, um, especially things like Cornus, St. Joseph, Hermitage you know, they'll all have a you know, a strong component of Syrah um, that I think shines in the slightly cooler temperatures as well it kind of, in general will sort of evoke sort of your, you know, flavours of blueberries, sort of a little bit, little bit more leafiness um, but equally, still immensely enjoyable, and with the, um, you know, also yields then sort of, you know, this particular wine then you will yield some mocha, some coffee flavours in there, some bramble type flavours that really make this an incredibly versatile wine. You know, with with any meats or even sort of tomato, we herby based foods. It's it's just a really reliable, r- reliable wine. And of course, you know, again as I mentioned earlier about the. In this particular producer, he works with organic fruit. Um, this, because he's in the Northern Rhone, the fruit will be sort of taken from around sort of um, Hermitage, Joseph, and sort of Cornas. They'll be taken from those areas. Um, hence, why he can't call it a village wine because he's got he's got fruit from outside those those village areas. But amazing wine, nonetheless, really good fun. Here's one for you, Greg. I was at another race at Dauphiné, the Criterium du Dauphiné, a couple of weeks ago. And having been at the Giro with Brian Nygaard, who's another of our resident wine experts, and having drunk a lot of red wines with him that he insisted on chilling slightly, I continued to do that at the Dauphiné, and particularly with a couple of Rhone wines. And it it becomes, maybe addictive is the wrong word, but once you've had a a red wine, particularly in sort of 30 degree temperatures, chilled by a couple of degrees, it's quite difficult to go back to room temperature reds. How do you feel about chilling red wines? In this case, it's 100%, you know, I fully agree with it, endorse it, and want to even champion it in some respects, because on one of my visits down uh, down to Nice, I remember... You know, my, my friend's father. You know, he, he pulled out. He pulled out. Uh, it was a Cote de Rhone, and but he pulled it out from the fridge on the basis that it was thirty degrees outside. Room temperature of a wine at thirty degrees is not really is not fun drinking. You know, so the ideal temperature, you know, 16, 18 degrees, drinking a little bit cooler really offers a lot more enjoyment. It sort of suppresses the out the the sensation you get from the alcohol in terms of in the wine, in terms of you don't necessarily feel that alcohol burn. Um, but equally, it allows some of the sort of softer, more subtle flavours to flourish and it just becomes a little, just becomes more enjoyable, enjoyable to drink and a lot easier. And I've, I really agree with you in terms of a lot, we do have some wines that we chill even further than that, but I think, especially in the summer months, it's a really good practice just to, just to take you know, a little put put the bottle, pull a bottle of wine in the fridge for 10, 15 minutes, and just allow it to drop down just a little bit. Um, it just gives you so much more enjoyment and make it a little bit more easy drinking. It's worth trying. Greg, stage 15, which, if I'm not mistaken, takes us to Carcassonne. Now, this is a, a really interesting region, particularly for lovers of French wine, lovers of big, deep, spicy, peppery, tobacco-y French wines, the kind of, for red wines, the kind of wines that I've generally gravitated towards. What have we gone for here? So, we're 
we're really sport for choice in the south of France. I mean, in terms of uh, you know, Daniel and I were talking. You, you've got you've got the Gaillac Rouge. You've got other areas like sort of Marciac, Madarin. You know, a lot of wines from Languedoc, Roussillon, Cahors that we'll talk about later on anyway. Um, you know, but, uh, and it's it's really a gold mine for sort of for wines that aren't necessarily. Um, well known in the UK, but they are some absolutely fa- deliver absolutely fabulous value. And for us, this was like a real joy to sort of shortlist some wines from the from the regions, particularly around Carcassonne, where we ended up deciding on the um, Domaine Gaillard Gaillac, uh, which is the great variety is a great variety called Braucol, which is not something that sort of most people don't haven't tasted before. Uh, but the good, th- you know, but it is a lovely, you know, su- you know, f- full medium to full body, fairly supple, and again, it sort of flavours sort of you know wild black currants, you know, the, you know, with a bit of bit of spice at the back end, a bit of sort of green pepper, sort of vegetal vegetal flavour coming through, but they're just really good wines in terms of anything grilled, anything you know, cheeses, other you know, fairly intense game flavoured meats. They're just really good, versatile wines. And the, the great thing about most of these vineyards I'll talk about here is there's very little disease pressure in the vineyards. So they're able to make wines sort of organically or biodynamically, or even if they're not certified. They're not using, they don't have to manipulate or use the fruit like adding sugar. They don't need to do that, you know, or chapter lies. You know, there's a, the quality of the fruit gives them the opportunity to, to make some really good, fun wines. And I think sort of uh, brown colors you know in terms of even if just having with some charcuterie and cheese it's a perfect way to sort of st- perfect way to sort of watch stage 15 really i think i said that stage 15 started from uh, carcassonne it actually finishes in carcassonne having started in uh, rodez and we've got a wine from a similar, well, from just really to the, uh, well, on the other side of Bézier, so similar kind of region, but this does correspond to a start in Carcassonne on stage uh, 16 um, after the rest day. But this next wine, Greg, wine number five now, is a white. And uh, Carignan, it's, a lot of people will have heard of Car- uh, Carignan, it's a bit of a workhorse grape of the south of France, but we've got the Carignan Blanc, um, not the more well-known, more widely available Carignan Rouge. So it, it would have been all too easy just to sort of sneak in another uh, long dot Roussillon red, and we you know, we love them ourselves. I mean, we you know we really do. One of our really strong performers of ours is a uh, Carignan Grenache Syrah blend from uh, from Roussillon, and it's absolutely fabulous. But we needed another white. We needed to balance out the the tour a little bit. Uh, so, we, you know, and we were thinking, do we put in a Grenache Blanc from down this area? And then we came across the Carignan Blanc, and it's like not something you see very regular. You see regularly at all. I mean, the name of the wine, um, you know, he, he has labelled it his rare selection just because of the minute amount that exists. And it is, you know, it is still Carignan. It's just a, a, a mutation of this, so it's just really sort of, um, it's a white grape. You know, a bit like Grenache Noir, Grenache Blanc and Grenache Gris. They're all different, it's all a different mutation. Um, and what you've got here is, again, it's just a really fresh, you know, citrus-driven white wine, but has a little bit of sort of um, 
has a minerality coming from sort of the you know the granitic and flint soils down there um, you know it just gives you a, t a totally different perspective and because it is so rare it's not that well known I think there's an incredible value to be had here in terms of I think we retail this wine for over 14 pounds um, you know if you're getting anything sort of from well going back to Burgundy or even uh, white Bordeaux you're generally going to be looking closer to 20 pounds for something at least if not more Greg, in, in real layman's terms, you talk there about a mutation and uh, basically a, a white equivalent of what, as I said, is, is better known as a red grape. Just explain what a mutation is. Yeah, so, basic, so basically, uh, I suppose it's, you know, I mentioned earlier in the, earlier in the um, recording that we, um, the Chasselas and Chardonnay cross was a, um, a laboratory-led hybrid. Hybrids can also occur naturally, and in this case, you know, or evolve depending on the conditions, slightly sort of greener, or just even just a natural evolution of, you know, of the of the vine. The vine starts to produce fruit that no longer has a red tinge, is now sort of a red skin, now has a paler pigment, and in, in this case, it's called a, you know, it, it may even be a be a pink pigment like something like Pinot Gris or a or a semi you know a semi on Gris which is another mutation we talk about where the grape starts to evolve in a different fashion and has, has actually a different pigment to the skin and obviously that then that pigment of the skin is how how effectively colours the wine in terms of you know a bit like rosé rosé is pressed and left on the skins for, for a couple of hours or a red wine left on the skins for two three weeks months but in this case the um, you know the producer is just pressing the what is now a white grape taking the skins off straight away so you have a really clean vibrant you know vibrant white wine and if one was to put a carignan blanc next to a carignan rouge produced in a more or less similar area similar region or maybe on the same winery would you taste any kind of commonalities no, any similarities I, th I think for us, because because of the difference in winemaking, there are a substantial difference. You may get similarities depending on where the grapes are. If the grapes are from a similar area, you'll probably see a similar spice profile that could be you know could be driven by the minerality. Um, but equally, in terms of I think the winemaking style is different between the two. So you will see different flavours coming out. For example, on the on a Carignan Rouge, it's going to be a sort of a lot more. You know, a lot more extraction, a lot more sort of berry lead, and sort of you know, just go down a sort of slightly different avenue, really. Greg, we've reached our final wine, and this one is from Cahors, where we will be on stage 19. It's another red, it's a Malbec. Tell us a little bit more about it, starting with well, what it's called and where it's made. So, the, so Malbec, uh, a lot of people are often surprised when we when we tell our customers that Malbec actually originated from France in the Gaul region and not Argentina. You know, and the Argentinians have done a fabulous job at sort of penetrating the UK market or even the, the global market and sort of they've they've made Malbec their own. But in the south of France, which is very much the home of Malbec Carl, um, it's certainly for me I remember that when I first tried Carl it was this sort of 
boisterous beast of a wine that generally probably needed another 10 years um, just to sort of soften out. You know, it was immensely tannic, immensely sort of deep, dark, you know, big flavours coming through. And I think what we've seen in in the in the Kaua region is a, an evolution, you know, younger producers coming to the fore and making wines that are a lot more enjoyable, younger, uh, which no doubt, no doubt helps a producer cash flow. Um, How do you do that? How does a winemaker do that? Well, instead of picking the fruit, sort of, they're picking the fruit earlier and they're not exposing it to as much oak, so it, the fruit itself, and they're not macer- what we call macerating the fruit. So in terms of shorter maceration times where the fruit is a little bit, so where the wine is a little bit lighter, a little bit more juicy, more smashable, um, as a you know, which is one of our favourite terms. But in terms of, you can drink a couple of glasses and still want another glass, or not feel not feel like curling up in the corner of a room going for a sleep. Um, whereas some of the big alcohols that were sort of certainly fourteen, fifteen percent, this is twelve and a half percent, which is achieved by picking the grape a little bit earlier, so you don't have those same levels of alcohol. You know, it's a lot fresher and more vibrant. And this produ- this particular uh, producer, Como Lasaya. You know, they were very, uh, they were very early on in producing something of this style um, that I think they've had a lot of success with, and a lot of younger producers now, and in the area are now starting to do the same. And it, I think it's a good thing. And they, you know, it's, you still show those hallmark, those hallmarks of Malbec qualities in terms of you've got some grippy tannins there still, you've got sort of that same fruit profile, but it's just a little bit fresher, making it uh, a better wine to drink earlier in the weeks. Greg, we've spoken in the last couple of years and we've spoken today as well about trends in wine and wine tastes, how people's tastes have evolved towards these kind of lighter, more acidic wines um, that can be drunk younger. Where are we in the kind of on the evolutionary sort of circle that always turns and it will go back around and we'll go, you know, I'm sure people will fall in love with bigger, more alcoholic wines again. But the, do you see this trend lasting and accelerating? I think I think in terms of a, as a trend, people enjoying younger wines, I think a, the producers have certainly, I, I did hint at sort of cash flow there, um, in terms of wines that producers don't want to have to sit on a wine for five years before they sell it or they don't want consumers buying wine and then not being able to drink it for 10 years they do want to make things a little bit fresher and more enjoyable not always but you know it is it is certainly a um, you know something that, that you know they they want to guide people to sort of enjoying their wines younger um, but equally I think what you know I th- yes at times it, it will probably swing back no question but I think just depends on the style in which the wine is made and also barrels are expensive you know in terms of you know, with French oak costing a thousand pounds a barrel uh, you know a lot of particularly younger winemakers or entry level wines they just want to they want to make them fresher and a lot easier for the guys to enjoy well, Greg, that concludes the, the tour from our point of view, from uh, the viticultural point of view for this year. What's your particular highlight of what you've chosen um, out of our six this year in 2022? I think, I think for me, uh, in terms of the white, it's very hard to go past the Alsace. I think the Alsace is, is, is a remarkable wine in terms of the layers you can keep peeling back and the just the different flavours that come through. Um, I do suspect a number of a number of listeners might think it's a little bit a little bit sweet for them. Um, you know, certainly what I'd ask is in terms of um, 
don't judge this wine on the very first sip and don't drink it too cold. Give it a little bit of time, allow it to open up a bit. But I think there's a lot of enjoyment to be had there. And I think in terms of the reds, I mean, as much as I like the uh, Stefano Auger Cote d'Arone, I think that is an absolutely fabulous wine. I I think the Gaillac kind of brings back memories for me when I when I, on a few visits to Toulouse, where sort of well, to be fair, I had I remember being introduced to Cahors in Toulouse as well, and I think it's just you know I think that region has so much to offer, and I think I think that just showcases a lot of good things around the southwest that is worth exploring a little bit further. Your countrymen, Greg, um, and others from the New World have been credited over the last 20, 30 years with a lot of what has been positive that's been happening in French wine, you know, bringing, new, bringing innovation, new techniques, new styles, um, even a new sort of economic model, I think, in some cases. Is, that still, is there still a big Australian presence down in Languedoc, uh, particularly in the south of France, and are they contributing to things evolving and becoming more modern? Well, I think a lot of new world, younger new world winemakers, you know, very much treated as their their apprenticeship of winemaking almost. Where, if if they've not made wines in the in you in France or you know in Europe, you know, they're not complete. So, in terms of, we're still seeing a large influx influx of younger assistant winemakers or you know coming in coming into France, and I think. Yeah, definitely in the south of France, uh, particularly particularly Provence, uh, Southern Rhone, and even sort of Languedoc, Roussillon. There's a lot of Australians making wine there, and you know, or a lot of a lot of people from the New World making wines there, taking some of the experience they've they've had from from their projects that they're working in back back home, but equally taking on some of those like you know, some of some of the local traditions and wine making techniques that they learn locally and also being exposed to different fruits and things like that that they wouldn't necessarily see back in their own markets and in some respects they take those home and and Australia being a particular example where you see we're starting to see different variety winemakers or wineries experimenting with different different varietals like I, I even remember seeing tanat being being grown in an experimental vineyard in Australia, which is great because it's drought resistant, it's heat resistant, it makes a lot more sense. And I think that wouldn't happen without that that internship. Yeah, exactly. That internship, that sort of uh, where you have producers coming over and doing that, and that's a, that's a good thing and should be embraced a little bit more, really. Greg, final question. Who's going to win the Tour de France? Well, final two questions. Who's going to win the Tour de France? And if it's a Slovenian, which we, we suspect it might well be... Who's, who's second place? <laughs> well, no. Are we going to, to celebrate this? It would be the third Tour de France in a row won by a Slovenian next year, regardless of the route, because I'm pretty sure the Tour route will not be going into Slovenia in 2023. But will we include a Slovenian wine just as a as a little homage? Definitely. I mean, there's, there's a lot of good wines sort of coming out of... Uh, coming out of Slovenia, um, got any in the shop? We do actually. We do. We do. We do have uh, two. Um, you know, the good thing is they, in most of the Slovenian wines we see in the UK market are, you know, generally sort of tra- tradition, quite traditionally made, organic, or biodynamic. And in this particular case, is a skin contact, uh, a skin contact wine, uh, and that, you know, definitely there's there is good quality coming out of Slovenia. So. Uh, maybe not necessarily the same caliber of quality <laughs> as our Tour de France champion at the moment, but 
I think there, you know, the winemaking is definitely some fabulous, and I think that's something we should probably look at doing, maybe for our uh, Grand Tour highlights this year. Well, God help the most prestigious Burgundy and Bordeaux chateaus if Tadej Pogacar starts making wine. If his winemaking is anything like his cycling, then they're they're in big trouble. Greg, it has been an absolute pleasure, and do you know what? We will reconvene. You you haven't followed through on the offer of some wine this morning it's get, it's nudging towards lunchtime so i'm still hopeful but we we will <laughs> we will reconvene in um, only only a few weeks with angus i think your yes. resident spanish specialist yeah. to discuss our vuelta España selection very much so i mean we're quite well advanced in the research on the uh, la Velta, so um, you know we've definitely got some cracking wines lined up um and we'll be finalizing that over over the next few weeks but no but definitely really enjoyed sort of researching and doing the Tour de France case this year. It's definitely delivered some really good value and some good fun. All right. Thanks, Daniel. Real pleasure. The Cycling Podcast was created in 2013 by Richard Moore, Daniel Freed and Lionel Burney.